Welcome to another episode of the Adastra podcast. Today we have with us Professor Richard Kramer. Uh, welcome. welcome. Thank you. Uh, professor is, is a, a researcher on the history of science, medicine and technology at Dartmouth College. He's an emeritus uh, associate professor at this point. And he's also the curator of their collection of scientific instruments, which is quite a uh, an interesting position and quite envious <laughs> in terms of a museum that must be excellent to have access to all those uh, instruments and all that technical history. So, Professor, welcome. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Um, it is an honor to, to be talking to you. Um, well, it's very, it's very nice to be here. My only wish is that I was sitting in Lisbon and uh, we could be across the table from each other. That would be very nice. Who knows? Yeah. In the future, we might yeah. we might have uh, another. That would be nice. With that kind yeah, of we'll arrangement, that would be interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, tell us a little bit about um, your work and your research, uh, which encompasses uh, quite a, a large historical period, not just Middle Ages and, and early uh, and the Renaissance and early modern, but also contemporary. into contemporary uh, history of science as well. Well, my, my research scope was defined by my teaching situation uh, in that at Dartmouth College, where I just retired after, after 35 years of teaching, I was the only professional historian of science. Uh, and so I taught undergraduate students the history of science from soup to nuts, we would say, from Babylonians and ancient China uh, up to the 20th century. So in that sense, I was, I was making lectures and doing seminars. Uh, across the entire scope of uh, the discipline of history of science uh, and history of medicine to a lesser extent and history of technology, uh, also bits and pieces. But my research uh, focused early on, on on 19th century universities and the development of research laboratories uh, there. Uh, but then for the last 20 years, I've been working increasingly on the history of astronomy uh, in the medieval and early modern period uh, I've also gone back as far as published some things on the Amagest uh, and, and Ptolemy. Uh, so that uh, in terms of my, my, my real work, uh, separate from my teaching, uh, has been in the, uh, in the history of astronomy. And in astronomy, uh, I've tended to focus on uh, what we call the practical side of, of astronomy. Uh, in other words, one can think about uh, mathematical astronomy uh, from the Babylonians on or from Ptolemy on, is having a series of levels uh, and you start with some general cosmological viewpoints about the the nature of of you know what aerosol is going to call natural philosophy uh, and then you move to some uh, mathematical models uh, if you are trying to predict motions in the in the sky uh, and you develop those models and you develop parameters based on either your cosmological beliefs or some observations some kind of empirical input and then you make tables uh, to make it easier for people to do the predictions uh, rather than having to calculate with chord tables or what are going to be called sines and cosines. <coughs> it's, it's a lot easier. And from the Babylonians on, uh, they said, no, let's just make tables of numbers that have the theory built in and the parameters built in. And so all you have to do is you enter with a date and you add some numbers. And then that tells you where the planets were or where an eclipse was. At, at a given time, uh, and you use tables to do that. And so that's, that's like the third level. So you have, you have the, 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 the cosmological assumptions, you have the astronomical theory, you have the astronomical tables, and then the final level is what I call the practical level, and that's where you actually use the tables to make positions, to serve your patron who wants to know when the next eclipse is, or wants to have a birth horoscope for his child, uh, or whatever, and people then use tables uh, to, to, to make these positions. And I'm interested in the computational side of this. Uh, there's been you know, a lot of other historians of astronomy who've worked on the theory, uh, and, and, uh, but the, there's, it's, it's hard to find sources to actually see people computing. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you, compute, you compute a birth horoscope, and then you throw the notes away 
uh, and, and you give the patron the final horoscope, right? You, you don't give the patron the, the pages and pages of your computation that it took to make that horoscope. Uh, and so it's, it's harder to find these sources. Uh, and, and, you know, when we can find them, uh, especially in the medieval period, I mean, we don't have any ancient, you know, we have no notes, we have no notes from Ptolemy, right? Uh, <laughs> the earliest manuscript we have from Ptolemy dates from the ninth century. So that's, you know, seven centuries after Ptolemy. Uh, so, so we don't have his notes. That would be wonderful if we could find a notebook. <laughs> that would be Ptolemy's own notebook. Uh, but that's not going to happen. Uh, but by the time you get to the 14th century, the 15th century, you start to find some notes. Uh, but a lot of my work is simply working backwards uh, with so-called reverse engineering. Uh, so that what I have is I have a completed set of computations. So let's say I have an eclipse computed, an eclipse prediction, which means you have the time of the eclipse, when it begins, when it ends, how big it's going to be. Uh, because those, those are the information you need to do your astrological interpretation of this based on, on things Ptolemy had to say in, in the Tetra Biblos, his his book on on how to do astrology um and and so you have that and then what i do is i reverse i, I calculate myself and i say okay how could he have calculated and i'll use the word he here because i think that most of my actors are he's uh i have yet to find maybe there's one or two uh women who've who've made it in my in my group of sources so far but for the most part it's he calculating how did he calculate what tables did he use uh what procedures did he take? Uh, what mistakes did he make? How did he correct his mistakes? Anyway, I, I, I work backwards. It's a very speculative game, but I've been able to learn quite a bit about how what I call the practice of computation by, by looking at completed horoscopes or looking at completed lists of syzygies, the times of the new and full moons, or times of eclipses. And then I'm able to, to trace the procedures uh, that they used and therefore start to put together uh, sort of understanding across Europe of at different times and places what tables people used, what theory they used, and how they made their horoscopes, which is what they don't tell you, right? <laughs> they, they, they don't write in their sources, oh, I did it this way. I mean, if they did that, then my life would be a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's always a problem with this kind of research. They don't tell us. How, how do they reach certain conclusions and certain calculations in this case? Yes. Um, yeah, I've been realizing lately how, how, well, I knew this, but how important it is in terms of the history of astrology to understand what kind of computations, tables, uh, and calculations they're making because there are several factors in the, in, in the architecture of an horoscope which are mostly a mathematical and astronomical problem rather than an astrological one. Um, I, I'm thinking of the, what kind of zodiac is being used um, and the computation of the house division, which yeah. is... The houses, is a, that's a big one. I mean, if, if you have horoscopes, actually worked out horoscopes, <coughs> and they give you the, the house cusp, the boundaries of the 12 houses, uh, in terms of positions along the zodiac, I mean, that's what uh, maybe most of your, your podcast listeners know about houses but uh you know what the house does is divide the sky into 12 parts uh divide the ecliptic into 12 parts uh and and uh, those have to be that's that's trigonometry spherical trigonometry you have to calculate that these aren't random parts uh there was a, a simple method of simply dividing them into 30 degree chunks that some people use but very rarely for the most part at least in my period uh from the the 13th through the 16th centuries uh people use some kind of system mathematical system to divide the houses and that is serious uh, spherical trigonometry uh, John North has written a wonderful book on this yeah. uh, called Horoscopes in History that we all use where in a very funny way he went through and uh, isolated seven different systems seven different mathematical systems for house divisions uh, that were used uh, in the in the medieval and early modern period uh, and I think you know, that's 77, that's a while back, but I think that his seven systems are pretty well held up. I mean, maybe you folks know whether there's been any new systems that people have found in the sources since John of North, John there North's work. Some authors yeah. there um, that um, have been questioning this idea, not contradicting, but uh, questioning, but uh, I don't know yeah. of any conclusions I think, yet. Yeah, I think there are, there are um, 
some additional systems, one or two or minor variants that uh -huh. have been founded later in Arabic um, manuscripts. Um, Jose Casoleras, I think, has a, a, a oh, okay, an updated article on that where they pick up on John North and then update a list of sources and, and variances yeah. that they found. In they, they don't contradict the mm -hmm. conclusions, they just add more ideas. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised because John North was working mostly on the Latin sources, so that the Arabic material had to be made into Latin before he would study it, because North couldn't deal with Arabic, didn't, he didn't read Arabic. Uh, so that it could be that in Al-Andalus there were other other house systems that developed. But anyway, once you have those systems, you can then calculate yourself and you can see which system was used. Uh, and you start to build up what I call the signature of the computer. Mm -hmm. Is that a, a given computer is going to usually make horoscopes the same way. Uh, and he's not going to, for one patron, use this house system. And for the next patron, use the next house system. At least I haven't seen that yet. Uh, that, that in general, when you go to a manuscript and you know, I haven't looked at the manuscript Helena, that you wrote your dissertation on, but it's filled with horoscopes, right? Did, did you look, are they all based, are all those houses based on the same system? Yes, Alcabitius, the so-called Alcabitius, or standard system, if you prefer. Uh -huh. And also, he also has an almanac from 1468 to 1480. Yep. And uh, he also includes uh, some calculations of planets, even from Almagest, the kind of the theory of planets and the uh, all these sorts of things. Uh, but there are two manuscripts. One is in France, Bibliothèque Nationale de France, mm -hmm. and the other one is in Lisbon. If you don't have the, the second one, I can... Provide. No, I have them. Uh, and I'm going to... I mean, I'm writing a book on ephemerides now in the, in the 15th, 14th, oh. 15th, 16th century. So your manuscripts are going to be one of the... or your, your fellow uh, is going to be one of the people I'm going to study. Yeah. Uh, so I will, I will look in detail how he did the ephemerides. Uh, but anyway, so that's an example houses where you can you can calculate backwards and you can say, okay, use that system. And what's nice about houses is you also have to put in a latitude, a geographical latitude. And so you can see if this is a, a, an astronomer who was an astrologer who was working in Oxford, let's say, or working in Paris or working in Spain or working in Italy, <coughs> because they are going to have different latitudes. And, you know, again, when you see the horoscope in the manuscript, it doesn't tell you what latitude it's made for usually and so you but you can extract that information if you do computing oh uh, so it's another example where you can then start to localize a horoscope and you can say okay this horoscope must have been made for northern italy by somebody in bologna because it's got bologna's latitude in it uh, and, and what's nice is that the the our medieval mathematicians astrologers astronomers they worked out a kind of astronomers cartography for what the latitudes were and longitudes of places. So for example, everybody knew that Nuremberg was 48 and a half degrees north, and they knew that Paris was 49 and a half degrees north, and they knew that Oxford was 16 minutes to the east of Toledo, and, and you know, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and those were sort of standardized values. So that when I find 16 degrees east of Toledo, I know right away that's Oxford, uh, because they weren't just guessing. They were using these accepted positions. So there, there's all this, this routinization and standardization in the practice of doing the astronomy and the astrology. And once we start to know that, then when you find it in the manuscripts, you can then localize things and you can date things uh, in ways that are nice. For example, Regio Montanus uh, did a, a set of tables to do, to do astrology called the Tabula Directionum that were in manuscripts starting in the 1450s, and then he printed them in 1490. And he, uh, they called it the Regio Montana system of houses. It was actually earlier, but it got Regio Montana's name on it. And you start to see these very characteristic lines. You can put them on astrolabe plates, yes. and then it's you can use an astrolabe to do the divisions. And you start to see these lines in the 1490s. Uh, and so when you see that, just you look at the astrolabe and you know, right, okay, that person's using the Regio Montana system. Uh, and, and so that it, there's all these clues that you start to pick up uh, in terms of the practice. Uh, and that's what's made it possible for me to do the work that I do. If, if every person just worked randomly and just, you know, made up their own house division system, et cetera, it would be chaos. And I wouldn't be able to find any patterns. But luckily, they all sort of had these normalized patterns of practice 
and I'm starting to learn what those are, and then you can start to, to, to sort out and understand the practical procedures of the people that were doing the mathematics that they needed to do astrology in, in the centuries that I study. Yes, and uh, it's as if they all had this kind of mental grid with the coordinates or the latitude. And, um, and this is something that uh, we don't have and we don't need because we have computers. So it's a different mindset <laughs> also. Uh, but uh, there is also uh, something that you mentioned some, uh, some other time that we talked about the, the angle between the Ascendant and the MC and the Midheaven. Mm -hmm. And this can tell us how much to the north or to the south they, they were. So this is something that is fixed for a location. That's oh. right. Now the, the ascendant is very important. And, and that, that uh, you know, when you look at a horoscope, I always look at the ascendant first, because uh, especially if it's a selection time. So it's not a, where you don't have the time, but you can, you can select the time if you're doing a, uh, an election, you know, when's the best time to start a war. Uh, and, and you can see that they, that they, chose, they chose the ascendant. And then that lets them control what planets are in what houses. So that, that gives you, uh, that, that's a very powerful tool when you're trying to understand the, the astrologer's mind who, who made that chart. Yes, there is, oh, sorry, nope. just another question. There is also another thing that I noticed in the manuscripts that I studied. Uh, when they were trying to um, ascertain the exact time of birth, they would say, I calculated this by a Nimodar, which is an astrological technique, or uh, a Trutina Hermetis, well, several techniques. And then they say, and I also confirmed this by Astrolabe. Mm -hmm. So they use not only tables and techniques that they know, but also the instruments. And sometimes they use them together, like redundant, in a redundant no. system to confirm. I, I, I found this very interesting. Because one thing does not exclude the other. Right. No, the astrolabe was the was the watch, right? So that you can you can tell time with an astrolabe in the day and the night. Uh, that was one thing I always had my students do when I was when I was teaching. Uh, my students, I would always have them make an astrolabe, uh, and then I would have them write a manual about how to tell time in the day and the night with the astrolabe. So you would see Dartmouth students out uh, on the campus walking around holding their astrolabe. It looked like the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> when they when they were trying to see if they could tell time, uh, but it's a great way. The best way for a person to understand an astrolabe is to make one, uh, and and so I had my uh, had my students doing that. Anyway, no, so I'm not surprised that that uh, you know if if the astrologer happened to be, you know, at present at birth and could then go outside and and could look at the stars or look at the sun, yes. an astrolabe would be an easy way to uh, to estimate the uh, estimate the time. On the other hand. I'm guessing that those people lived with the sky in ways that, that we have never, we don't do anymore. And they didn't need an astrolabe to tell time. Uh, I'm guessing that a medieval person, uh, especially a person who was an astrologer or mathematician, would have watched the sky so much that they simply would look outside and they would know that it's in September and they would know that when the stars are here, it's 10, 15 in the evening. I'm guessing they could tell time to within 15 minutes without any instrument at all, just with the sky. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they will. Sure I'm sure they will. And also, we also um, we have a replica of an astrolabe, and we also have um, paper astrolabes. And we tried. And one thing that we uh, learned is to have a lot of respect for these people. <laughs> very, very. It's very um, not only difficult to build an astrolabe, but also requires knowledge to to use it. Yep. So th this is this is one that <laughs> yes, that, that exactly. I use. You you've maybe seen this one. This is was designed, uh, and I think it was sold by the Websters. Yes, at the at the Adler Planetarium. Yeah, that's that cool. came as came as a kit, and you could just uh, you know put Assemble it together. It, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I always keep this in my office, and I, I, I use it quite often when I'm when I'm puzzling something over a text. Uh, it's the easiest way to check on house boundaries, for example. It, it, with some systems, you can use an astrolabe much easier than you can put it in your computer and, and calculate it. I was wondering on the houses still. Um, have you have you um, have your uh, research corroborate what Nord says about the the frequency of each system? Because he, he calls the the, the Alcabitius that we were referring the standard system due to its uh, almost uh, universal. universal use. 
do you, do you verify that? In, in, in I, I have not been systematic on that. I have, I have never done a study, a systematic study of horoscopes. Uh, uh, Gunter Ostman, do you know Gunter Ostman? Yes, we do. In, in Bremen? He, he has working, been working on a project for some time, going in somewhat in the later period, to, to systematically study horoscopes and manuscripts. I mean, just to be, you know, hundreds of them. Uh, and I don't know if he's published anything yet on this, on this project. Uh, but that would be an example of somebody who's trying to, to answer a question like this based on a survey of what you find. I think he's still working on this, yes. I think he's still in the, in the, in the middle of this process, I think. No, the, the, the practice that I've worked on the most is the syzygy computation. Uh, so that's the, the so-called delta T problem, uh, where you need to know where the true conjunction or the true opposition of the sun and moon are. Uh, and that's the first step for calculating an eclipse. Uh, and uh, it turns out to be one of the most complicated problems in all of Ptolemaic astronomy. Uh, and you have to make approximations to do this. Essentially, it's a problem of calculus uh, that, of course, we don't have until the 17th century with Leibniz and Newton, where you have the sun moving with one velocity that changes as a function of time, and you have the moon moving with another velocity that changes as a function of time. And you want to know when these two things come together. You want to know the time. And that is difficult. Ptolemy and the Babylonians, too, arranged their mathematical models so you can sort of think of it as a box a black box and you have an input and an output mm -hmm. and for Ptolemy the input is time and the output is a position so you know I, I want to know where the planets are at 10 15 at night and then Ptolemy will tell you where they are but now to find syzygy it's the reverse where you put in a position you say I want to know when they're at the same place and then you have to have a time come out and Ptolemy's theory is not designed to do that. Hmm. And because this means we have to deal with velocities. And, you know, the, the Greeks didn't have the concept of velocity. Uh, Ptolemy knew, of course, how to do velocity. And he knew what velocity was. But, but the idea of a velocity uh, was this is not an idea. This is a 16th century idea. Uh, but but the, the syzygy problem requires this. And so there were all kinds of clever ways, uh, you know, starting with Ptolemy, who said, let's, let's assume that the moon moves 12 times faster than the sun on the average. And then he puts this factor of 1312s in. And, and so anytime you see 1312s in a syzygy computation, you know that person's following the Almagest. Uh, but this is an approximation. And I've shown that it can be off by up to six or seven minutes of time. Now you might say, oh, six or seven minutes, you know, who cares? That's good enough. Uh, but the Almagest is designed to work to precision of minutes. Uh, and in fact, I, I like to say that the, the, the poor medieval astronomers, which means all the Arabs <coughs> and our Latin people, they were working under what I call the tyranny of Ptolemy. Because <laughs> if, if they had said to make a horoscope or to do astronomy, we just need to know to the nearest degree or to the nearest hour. And we don't need to know minutes of, of angle or minutes of time. It would have made life so much easier. Uh, <laughs> And you wouldn't have needed these tables. You wouldn't have needed interpolation. You could interpolate with the naked eye. Uh, working to degrees is easy. Working to minutes suddenly gets hard computationally. But Ptolemy said, and he runs his Almagest, all his computations and all his models are worked out to minutes and sometimes to seconds. Uh, and doing that meant that people had to really scratch their heads and think. And the syzygy problem was one of the biggest problems that, that people thought about uh, and had different solutions. So Al-Khwarizmi had a solution. Al-Batani had a very interesting solution uh, in, in terms of Arabic, the, the most important Arabic zijas. Uh, and, and then you get to, to Al-Andalus, and, and they're working on this. There's a guy named Al-Khamid who, who does a, a, a table that's based on, a, on, a, on his solution to this where he doesn't take Ptolemy's 12 thirteenths. But he says, no, let's pay attention to both how fast the sun is going and how fast the moon's moving. Let's not approximate them. And so he gets a little more precision. Uh, and then by the time you get to the, to the 14th century, there's, there's more ways. I've just done a big article uh, on uh, one of the early Alphonsine astronomers named John Amures from Paris. And he invented some new tables in the 1340s called the Tabula Permanente, permanent tables. 
and they were to solve the delta t problem to to give you the time of true syzygy their double entry tables uh these were the last big innovations in a table in alfonsine astronomy uh in the 1340s these you know the alfonsine tables are put together from the 1260s starting in in, in toledo going up to paris till the 1340s and the tabula permanente were the last ones and i just figured out how they worked uh i think that john of muirs and i are the only two people in the world that uh understand how his tables work <laughs> people <laughs> use them all the time but uh just because you use the table doesn't mean you understand how they were made yeah. uh and and we know that now so anyway uh this this question of 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 the the time of true syzygy and then people made instruments that's that's another thing is that some of the most interesting instruments that were invented in latin astronomy are to try to s- solve this true syzygy problem hmm. uh, and and so it was really a uh, a problem that comes out of eclipses and of course you need eclipses because of the astrological interpretation so you've got an astrological need you've got ptolemaic theory that lets you predict eclipses but you have to solve the delta t problem and the best mathematical minds in the middle ages worked on this delta t problem uh, and the best instrument makers uh who who were working with either paper instruments or brass instruments did some very creative ways to solve the delta t problem uh using using instruments yeah yeah because i was thinking as you we were explaining all this they would need the eclipses for prediction they would need even simple lunations for for weather prediction uh, yes additional computation so it was and as you said they needed to diminish because they didn't need to erect an horoscope for the time to get that ascendant degree and that ascendant degree must be exact to, to the time where where the syzygy well, and and it even gets more complicated than that so one of my favorite manuscripts <laughs> I, guess, i guess historians can talk about their favorite manuscripts right uh, <laughs> i know what yours are helena at least for your dissertation you have those, those those two manuscripts so one of my favorite manuscripts is is vienna 4988 uh and this is a notebook as i said you know we don't have notebooks This is a notebook of the young Regio Montanus. And Regio Montanus uh for your listeners, you know, they probably know Regio Montanus. He was one of the leading mathematicians at the end of the 15th century. Um uh, and he wrote with his with his teacher Poyerbach a number of little texts where they say that the existing astronomy is wrong and we need to reform astronomy. They are they are some of the strongest voices calling in the 15th century for a reform of astronomy before you get to Copernicus. Uh and people have known this so they've been on the radar screen for quite a while uh Regio Montanus and Poyerbach. Uh but Regio Montanus then was called by the Pope in in 1476 to go down and work on calendar reform and he caught the plague and he died. So pandemics are were bad for astronomy. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're bad for astronomy now. Uh they were bad for astronomy then. Anyway, It so he died quite young, wasn't he? He was quite young. We we don't know quite when he was born. And that brings me back to to Vienna 4988 because Vienna 4988 starts in 1448. Uh and some people think that that he was born in the 30s which means that this would he would have started this notebook when he was like 14 years old. And the question is whether it makes sense for a 14-year-old to do this level of computation. So what he did was that he computed a calendar where he where where he gives you the positions of the planets and the aspects well, you know what the angles are between the planets which is you need for astrological readings and he gives you the true syzygy times and he makes horoscopes for every uh i think it's just the the new moons and maybe it's maybe it's the, the both both moons so that would be 20 either 12 or 24 or 25 horoscopes a year he makes but he doesn't make just one horoscope he makes two horoscopes because there's two times uh for for uh where where the syzygy is according to the mean astronomical time or according to the sol the sundial time and he adds the equation of time on them and so he'll put two times in there based on whether it's for the equation of whether it's for sundial time which is how people told time or whether it's astronomical mean time and this little guy 14 years old makes all these horoscopes and it's in the manuscript so the manuscript is filled with hundreds of horoscopes it's filled with 30 years of calculating the daily positions of all the planets and the nodes and the aspects <clears throat> and in 1474 he's going to publish so so Regimontanus you know he 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 studies uh in Vienna 
Then he meets some people in Italy in, in, the, in 1460, Basarian, and he goes down and he works in Italy for a number of years, works with Basarian, gets in a big fight uh, with George of Trebizond. George of Trebizond did a translation of the Almagest uh, in the 1460s, and Regio Montana says it's a lousy translation. And there's this big fight back and forth, and there's these massive texts written uh, about all kinds of... Regio Montanus was a... He loved to fight. He was just a nasty guy. And, and writes writes very almost scratological uh, criticisms of his enemies. It's, it's a little unpleasant sometimes. Uh, anyway, uh, he was there, then he went to Hungary and, and worked for a patron in Hungary. But then he wanted to start printing. So in the 1460s, printing is starting. <clears throat> and Regio Montanus says, I want to print uh, a humanist set of new translations of Greek texts and Arabic texts and my own works. And he went to Nuremberg because Nuremberg had the best craftsmen. Nuremberg was an early printing center, had very good silversmiths who could make the type. And he started the press. Regio Montanus is the first astronomer to start a press. You know, Tycho Brahe is going to print his own books. Johann Schoener is going to print his own books. Johann Havelius in the 17th century is going to print his own books. There are a number of famous astronomers who wanted to do their own printing so they could control the process. And so Regio Montanus started that first. And in 1474, he published the first book that has a million numbers in it uh, in, in, the, in, in printing with movable type in Europe. It's his Ephemerides. And it gives you daily positions from 1475 to 1506. This was a big book. Uh, and I'm studying that for some other projects too. But anyway, this, this Vienna 4988 is the same thing with the daily positions starting in, in, in like 1448. Uh, so it's, it's an amazing manuscript. And it has all these horoscopes. And you know, people have known this for a long time, but nobody's actually sat down and analyzed the horoscopes. Hmm. Uh, and so this is one of my projects, is to look at this young, young university student. You know, you started to go to university when you were 14 uh, in the 15th century. So it's conceivable that he could have been only 14 years old. But anyway, he does all these computations. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of computations to get the daily positions for 30 years. I mean, this is this is exceedingly difficult. Uh, I think Emmanuel Poole wrote once, you know, the, the, the French historian of, of astronomy, uh, when he was first starting to, to get into the tables, he published an article where he did his own computation of a horoscope. Uh, and he said it took him, you know, like two hours for each planet. And so it took him all day to make a horoscope. And here's the young Ray Montanus making hundreds of them. Uh, and uh, calculating all these positions. So Rachel Montanus was a very fast computer. Uh, and every, everybody, and people, he knew that at the time. He was, he was seen as one of these genius computers who could work very, very quickly and didn't make mistakes. Uh, it, it's incredible. But anyway, that's one manuscript that I want to look at to, to start to looking at to your question about horoscope computation uh, and, and to, to see if I can, by, by reverse engineering, see how Rachel Montanus went about his task. And this, this emphasis on the lunations brings us to another conversation that we have, we all have, about uh, lunations versus ingresses or lunations versus uh, the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction. So which astrologers prefer the lunations? Which astrologers prefer the other computation? And which, in practice, use both? Because from what I could see, at least... My guy, as you say, <laughs> the, 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 the astrologer I studied, he used both. He used mm -hmm. just both. Uh, although he, he, I think he was more into what is, I think his teacher, Heingarter, said. Yes. He was more like Heingarter, but uh, who was a Ptolemaic. Uh, but he used both anyway. So they, they, uh, they would um, allege, this is from our previous conversation, they would allege uh, both astronomical reasons, because it was, uh, lunations were more precise, as they said, mm -hmm. and also symbolical reasons, like uh, the power of the planets and all sorts of things. So um, it is amazing to see how much energy they would put in this computation of the CCT, because yes. they would also have to put some energy in the other kinds of computations. Yeah, well, this is, this is a question that I leave to, to people like you, scholars like you who, who study the, the astrological texts and the, and the astrological fights. 
uh, I consider that above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> I, I let I let people that, that that know more about astrology than I do uh, analyze those things, and and I simply look at the mathematics that they do uh, in the computation. So as to whether Regio Montanus, for example, thought that lunations were more important when he was doing a, a, a prediction than than uh, aspects or, or conjunctions, uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't know if he wrote a text on it. We'd have to see. Uh, I mean, we do have this this one big uh, interpretation that that he did for the birth of the future Emperor Maximilian the First. He did this for Leonora in 1459, and it's also we have the manuscript, we have the autograph manuscript that's in Vienna. <coughs> it's another of my favorite manuscripts. I think it's Vienna 5174 or something like that, uh, and it's like 25 folios. It gives you gives you two horoscopes. It gives you the horoscope of the date of the birth of the time of the birth, and then it gives you the horoscope of the syzygy before. Leonora, so, so, you mean Leonora or Maximilian? The, the Leo, no, I think it's it's the the syzygy before Maximilian's birth. Okay, because about Leonora, there's something I have to tell you. Uh -huh. We have a manuscript here in Portugal written by Leonora's father, King Duarte. And he, he, he was a very thorough man. He, he wrote about a lot of things. And one of the things he wrote is memory of the birth of my children. So he wrote about his children, like my child uh, so-and-so was born in this day. And the day he gives for Leonora is not the same as Reggio Montanos has for some reason. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I have a text that I I, um, I discussed this with uh, Martin, um, Martin Vess. I don't. Well, it's a scholar in Hungary, young mm -hmm. scholar, uh, because he's studying uh, these uh, horoscopes. And I can share the, the text I sent to you and the data uh, with you because this is such a strange thing. And it's an, an error, a large error, isn't it? It is, a, it is two days yeah. or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. He was born strange. somewhere in September. It's like between 16 and 18 of September. So uh, I think this is a, a, something that we should look into. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, it's, it's easy enough to do, uh, and you know, yeah, we who, all knows, <laughs> who knows where people get their get their information, uh, you know, and, and, and to what the actual patriarch relationship was. He was the father, so he should know <laughs> at least. But uh, but well, the, the question is how many how many years after the birth did he write this down, and uh, you know how good was his memory? That uh, is also that is yeah, also a good, a good question. question yeah. Yeah. When it's it, it's hard to it's hard to know. Uh, but anyway, for the most part, in my, my own scholarship, uh, I, I focus on the mathematical astronomy and, and let colleagues uh, do, the, do the astrological analysis and look for sources and things like that. I'm, I'm writing emails all the time to Davi Just and, and to Gunter Osman and to you, Helena. Uh, every time I hit an astrological question I can't explain, I, I ask somebody else for help, or Charles Burnett, when if it's earlier. Uh, he and I, Charles Burnett and I, have been having an on ongoing conversation for a long time. Maybe we've talked about this too about latitudes, and and why we don't see latitudes. It, you know, there are some texts uh, from Abu Mazar or other people that that talk about latitudes and how that you should, when you're doing uh, a horoscope, you have to worry about the latitudes of planets as well as the longitudes. Uh, but it's very rare in the hundreds of horoscopes I've looked at that you find the latitudes actually written in the chart itself. Uh, and so the question is why, or the question is how important are latitudes, were latitudes, by the time you get to the, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, uh, people, you know, working astrologers. And, and I don't, Charles and I don't have an answer to that question mm -hmm. uh, yet. And, and we need to have somebody to do a bigger systematic study it of, has to of the role of latitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Probably has to do with the fact that people were taking their, their positions from tables. Mm -hmm. They were no longer looking. And what they get from tables is the projection of the planet in the zodiac. So latitude is ne neglectable. Yeah, um, but if you look in the sky and you, if you see a conjunction of planets with latitude, they can have different latitudes and they are no, not really together. Mm -hmm. One right. could be north yeah. of the eclipse, but there, the but there are there were tables for latitudes too. Yeah. So if the, if the astrologers wanted to know the latitudes, they could have looked them up in tables. Yeah, I think yeah. the only it's practice true. that I would see that consistently might need latitudes, if the astrologer is using it like that, would be directions. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. 
would be the technique which That's consistently here. is significantly changed uh, with the, 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 the consideration of latitude. Uh, so I think perhaps the answer might be there in some way, because in the horoscope itself, in plan, plain planetary positions within an, an horoscope, as far as I know, and I might be missing something here, uh, even in the astrological doctrine, latitude is um, well, there are secondary. Few, there yeah. are a few things, and as I, I um, presented the other day in the alpha uh, tea mm. time, uh, there are a few things about yeah. latitude in meteorology, yeah. in uh, physiognomy, but kind of. Uh, but they're just, secondary. They in, are in secondary. Any case, yeah. no, that's been that's been my that's been my view too. I mean, I've been saying I don't think latitudes are important. No, um, no, it's just another extra, extra information. I think so. It's yeah. not, not, not central to the, to the, to the interpretation. Mm -hmm. But it's just. But, but then, in one of these Heingarter, uh, you know, the teacher of your, of your fellow, one of the Heingarter manuscripts in, at the BNF in Paris, uh, it's a collection of, of documents that Heingarter pulled together. It's a presentation manuscript, so it's very nicely done. There's a, there's a brief text. I think it's something out of Albumasser. Uh, and then there's an appendix at the end that talks about three birth horoscopes. Uh, and I've looked briefly at one, and one of them lists the latitudes of the planets. Uh, and I haven't had, you know, I found this out just last week uh, or two weeks ago. I haven't gone back to look at the manuscript yet to see if the text says anything about why it does anything with those latitudes. The other two birth horoscopes in this appendix just have longitudes they don't put latitudes in but one of them has like and it's an it's an early date it's it's for the it's for the date of of abu masar it's, it's like 988 or something uh so it's it's you know it's it's an actual historical date for for how we date his birth uh and it's it's got these latitudes in uh and it's there's copies of this there's at least three or four it's in it's in a manuscript that the text is copied so there are there are i, I think maybe a dozen manuscripts and i've looked at two of them uh, so far that are available with scans and both of them have latitude. So it wasn't just one scribe who, who did something different, but the text itself circulated with latitudes in. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a puzzle that, that I want to look at to, to see yeah, if, if, yeah. if we can, if this gives any clues for why this would have been the end of the, well, I don't know when the text was written. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was being copied in the 1460s, 1470s. Yeah. Uh, so at, at least Heingarter knew that there was a birth horoscope that has latitudes in it. Yeah, yeah. And it would be uh, interesting to see yes. if the text mentions something. Yeah. Because uh, I'm, I, uh, from 16th century to 17th century astrology, you do find a more consistent use of latitudes, not so much in interpretation, but in the computation of the planet's strength. Uh, yes. Consider if it has a northern latitude or if it's increasing in, in northern latitude, it has more power than a planet that is decreasing or going south in terms of latitude. Decreasing in latitude, yeah. yes. Oh, that's interesting because you can see that in the printed ephemerides. So in my ephemerides project, I've also studied all the ephemerides for your listeners. An ephemerides is a book that lists the daily positions of the planets. So the poor astrologer doesn't have to sit there and calculate where the planets are, but they can just look in this table and it gives them the positions at noon. So, you know, if, if you have it seven o'clock in the evening, then you just have two things and you do a linear interpolation between the two. Anyway, it makes it makes the mathematics of astrology much easier if you have an ephemerides. Uh, and and starting by 1500, the printed ephemerides oftentimes will have they give you the daily positions of the longitudes. Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom by month by month. So each page has a month of positions on it. Thirty one lines, thirty one lines. But then at the bottom, there will be three lines that will give you the latitudes for the first of the month, the 10th of the month, and the 20th of the month. Mm -hmm. All at 10, at 10 day intervals. Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered, why didn't they do it at all intervals? What you've just told me is that if you just need to know if it's northerly and if it's increasing, or if it's northerly and decreasing, mm -hmm. you can see that by looking at the bottom of the ephemerides page. Yeah. And it tells you what you need to know. That's <laughs> I've learned something. This is very nice. <laughs> It's good. <laughs> I like I like to have conversations where I'm learning something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always it's always good to exchange things. Uh, we've uh, we've been learning a lot with you. Is, is there is there a classic text, uh, an astrological theory text that tells you about this business of 
of of the increasing or the decreasing latitude yeah, and, and what it means for the strength of the yeah there's a few i think um shona's um okay has uh sort uh, of Puskum is a go-to at this time because he lists a number of conditions that the planet yep, yep. should have and i think he addresses latitude uh, I would have to check, but I would suspect he does because at the end he presents um, the weighing table that he uses for strengths and weaknesses of the planets having all these conditions, speed, um, latitude, etc. So I think he will have that explained somewhere. Well, that's a great text. No, I, I will look at that. That's that's a good idea. Yeah. Schoner's no. another another example of an astronomer astrologer at his own printing shop. Uh, he he started printing his own books. Yeah. That explains why some of his books are very good in terms of printing. Yes, They're very well, well, well finished uh, in terms of diagrams and, and types. Yeah. yeah. And if we think of printing in that period, printing a table was very complicated because they need to have all the types, all the types really. So it was such a, a task to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's <laughs> very nicely illustrated. His books are. Uh, Oh, oh yes. Well, he was he was close to Nuremberg, and Nuremberg had the best uh, engravers and the best woodcut artists. Think Albrecht Durer, think Jomnitzer, yeah. uh, in in the early 16th century. This, I mean, that's why Rachel Matanas went there. The the the, the craftsmen, the yeah. metal workers were were very very skilled. Yeah, because for example, I'm I'm always comparing, for example, the example of Portugal, um, the almanacs that we have here. Only two that I know of have the, 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 the ingress of the year uh, engraved only mm -hmm. two, by the same author, which was a, a court physician and he had more money. Which one? Um, Kashmir. Kashmir, yeah. Kashmir was not even Portuguese. He was like, I think, from Holland? Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah. But he was, he was working in Lisbon. He, he was, was working yeah. in Lisbon. Yeah. He was working oh. for the king. So this is 1640s. Uh, he's already... By this time, someone 50 years old, so he's not young. Uh, but he does have, it's the only almanac that I know of that has uh, the horoscope. The other ones just have a decoration, a very generic okay. embellishment. The description of the, of, the, of the horoscope, of course, but not the image itself. And that's consistent throughout printing in Portugal, for example, until late uh, 17th century. So we don't have any any mm -hmm. any investment uh, on this kind of, uh, of embellishment and diagrams in, no. in, in astrology books, at least. Yeah. No, they're they're very strong regional traditions for how to do this. So that the people in the Low Countries, their almanacs looked a certain way, and the Paris printers theirs looked a certain way, and the the printers in 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 Venice and Bologna, or in in Krakow. Uh, there's there's these distinctive styles. Uh, I don't know if you know the work of Klaus Dieter Herbst. Uh, he's a German scholar from Jena, and he has over the last 10 or 20 years worked on Schreibkalender, uh, which is a, a particular kind of almanac that's going to emerge in the 1540s that uh, has its format where you have uh, for a given year, they came out each year uh, like, a, like a prognostication or an almanac, uh, and it has on one side, of, on, the, on the, 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 the verso side of the page, are the 31 lines with the astrological and, and, and calendrical information. And the other side is blank. Uh, and it's for the user to use as to take notes. And so it's called a writing calendar or a scribe calendar. Mm -hmm. And this format, by, by 1550, 1560, this format is sweeping across Europe. Mm -hmm. and, and Klaus Dieter Herbst is a historian of astronomy, but also printing. And he has put together bibliographies of literally tens of thousands of editions of these calendars. And he's found the places in Europe where there are big archival collections of them. Uh, and he's done some conferences and published a whole series of books uh, on, on sort of the printing aspects, as well as, and, and his thesis is that this, this, this tradition is where we get daily newspapers, that the idea of of a first of all a, a, a monthly i mean the, these calendars are periodical right the first mm -hmm. periodical was not a scientific journal that gets published every year the first periodical was an astrological calendar that got published every year and then as you know you start to get more information in the calendar so maybe you'll have at the back 
so it's got the you know it's got the the, the the Christian feast days and it's got bloodletting information for surgeons and it's got the predictions of the year for the weather and it's got the the astrological interpretation of the horoscopes and then it's got readings of from the revolution of the year of what's going to happen to the priests and what's going to happen to the kings and etc and then you start to get information about market days so where are the farmers markets going to be in the regions or then you'll get information on how many days does it take to get to paris or how many days does it take to get to to get to krakow traveling and then you start to get news reports and by the by the middle of the 17th and the you know earlier than that these things start to turn into what we are going to call newspapers yeah. and so people that do the history of periodica and the history of the emergence of the public space and periodical literature for the public space that is going to build you know political political cultures need publications to have political cultures and 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 so there's a massive group of historians that study that and and Klaus Dieter Herbst is sort of a nice person that is in that world and he's also in the world on the, the history of astrology and astronomy uh so that i mean these these are some of the most printed genres of the first two centuries of printing you know it's not the bible uh it's not it's not textbooks for university students no it's the annual calendars uh that's how printers made their money that's how you know this would be a a, a regular income they know in december people are going to buy the calendar for the new year <coughs> and so they can print out there's big debates about how many they print out did they print out 500 did they print out 5000 they sell them cheaply but that is income the printer knows is going to come in where if he prints some you know textbook he doesn't know whether the university students are going to buy it or if he prints a bigger book you know this is a huge financial risk for a printer and if it turns out that the market doesn't want that book that printer's not going to be around very long and indeed most printers went bankrupt uh but if you printed calendars <laughs> that was a that was a known money maker yeah and sounds, and these, yeah. these calendars uh, in the beginning <clears throat> in the beginning of press they are probably the answer to something that was already happening in the manuscripts because for instance returning to this manuscript i studied they have the but i know this is common they have the ephemeris they have the almanac that they wrote by hand and then in the margins they have events like a yes. battle or someone who was born or something so this this calendars that uh, these almanacs that have the part for for writing the blank part for writing they are probably the answer to this they need it right <laughs> and and indeed social historians have looked at the shrive calendar for all kinds of sources uh i mean you you can find out about about you know events you can find out about families you can find out about money you can find out about epidemics uh and i have an article started in fact i owe this to klaus dieter herps for one of his books uh so i i've wanted to ask okay so when you had the shrive calendar made for the first time how did people use it In other words, this is this is something new. They've never had a printed source like this before. What did they write in? And so I have found with Klaus Dieter's help the 10 earliest scribe calendar that we have existing. And you know, they're in they're in libraries from from, you know, places in Switzerland up into Germany because that's where they they started these things. And I have a project where I'm going to study all the handwritten notes. What did people write in their scribe calendar when it was their first one? <clears throat> and it's a very difficult thing because the handwriting is hard to read right these are not scholars hands these are merchants these are 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 surgeons these are you know who knows who they are for some of them i know for others i don't know who they are but to try to decipher and they write in very tiny I mean some of them are completely filled so they want to write something every day and and so they're trying to squeeze in 31 days worth of notes onto you know these are these are quarto books so they're they're cheap printed books and and it's just it's all text and to try to read these hands is really difficult so it, it you know i i gave up on it and told Klaus Dieter i, I i'm not going to get this article done <laughs> on time for your book uh but i still want to write it sometime when i have more time to to try to read these things and and to see how people how how, how the consumers of this literature mm-hmm. use the book i mean it, i my one of the papers i gave on it was called the reader talks back because this gives you a way to see the reader putting his thoughts or her thoughts now these could be women writing in these things putting her thoughts in their book uh and uh 
Uh, we'll see what happens in this if this yeah. ever turns into a paper. Very yeah, interesting. Looking forward. <laughs> uh, what kind of writing is it? Is it kind of this typical 17th century writing with uh, the abbreviations and? Uh, yes. Next it's it's filled with abbreviations. Uh, it's it's mostly in the vernacular. So that's the other thing with Schreibe Kalender. Schreibe Kalender went into the vernacular very quickly, uh, so that the the early ones are in Latin. But by the time you get to the 1540s, increasingly this literature goes into Italian, into Niederdeutsch or Dutch, into German. Uh, there is not much of the Schreibe Kalender in in Iberia. So in Spain and Portugal. I, I think it would be later. I don't think there's any 16th century Shrab calendar from not that from, know. Not, not yeah. that I'm aware from this area. Yeah. But we'll be we'll be. I'll be attentive. We'll be attentive. Uh, see if I if I can find it. But I, I don't recall. I'm, I'm I'm trying to. There aren't in many in-depth studies on the almanacs and publications, at least in Portugal. In Spain, I'm not aware of. Um, but what the research that has been made. I don't think we have them. I don't think we have not sixteenth, seventeenth uh, century that I know of. Well, but no. we will be looking because we can find something. Yeah, yeah. if there is something. Even to in find. Well, but, but that's but that's an interesting point, and and you know, increasingly scholars are saying that by the to get to the sixteenth century and after the Protestant Reformation, astrology becomes a confessional matter, hmm. and the place where you find the most annual calendars. And the most shred calendar are Protestant areas, not Catholic areas. So that the extent that Spain and Portugal uh, were Catholic and were not Reformed uh, would explain why you don't have as many shred calendar. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Robin, uh, what's his name? Robin, Robin, Robin. Uh, anyway, there's, there's just been a book called Reformation and Astrology. Do you know that book? Yes. It, yes. it was published five, four or five years ago. Robin, what's his name? I forget. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a very nice book, and, and he makes this yes, argument. It, is. it says that that because of Melanchthon, who was a big astrology supporter, that that uh, that as uh, after the after 1530, let's say, uh, you really start to see as the places where astrology is thriving and where publications are thriving are places where there are Lutherans uh, and 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 Protestants, uh, not not strong Catholic areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um... In Portugal specifically, and uh, a little bit in Spain. Spain is, is, is much larger and, and it's, uh, it has more variance. But here in Portugal, in terms of astrological publications in these periods, we have small almanacs. Uh, we have uh, larger books, uh, they're called the, Repertor- the Repertorios, which are sort of a low-end manual of uh, astrology uh, with mixture of almanac it's something in between a more complex book and and, and an almanac mm. uh, which has a lot of it surprising it has a lot it's of information it's yeah. a very interesting type of book um and for example for portugal as far as we are aware of there's only of the publication of one book on astrology so one mm. book on theory on astrometriology in 1632 by um, Antonio de Najera. Antonio de Najera. That does, Which is a, actually a Spanish name, but he was born in Lisbon. Yeah, he said he was born in Lisbon. He states that he's born in Lisbon. He writes in Spanish because at the time we were under uh, Spanish, Spanish domain. domain. Um, and it's a, a complete manual on astrometriology. So very procedures, techniques, very interesting book. Actually, it it would be, it, this would deserve like a critical edition. It yeah, was really a, very, a good, it's interesting a, book. Very interesting book. Uh, but it's the only one. There's nothing else that we can find within the category of an astrology book. So yeah. a, a primer of sorts that that gives you astrology. So are there are there examples of actual censorship or repression, where political authorities or church authorities said no, we don't want to publish astrology books because it's too close to demonology or no, or, no. or something like no, this? No, no, not really. They were not happy, of course, but they were more worried about. Um, uh, how do you say this? A kind of uh, people who were Jewish and were converted by force, yeah. and then they were relapsing into Judaism. So main, that's uh, that's yeah. what they were worried the, about. Yeah, the Inquisition here main concern seems to be uh, Judaism, <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. that's their obsession. <laughs> Not so much with astrology. There is some censorship. I, I wrote a paper. I can send it a uh, copy to you. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I wrote a paper on censorship and and the Important. the indexes here and how they actually. Oh, very nice. And they do censor it, but it's very light. They do um, hit these repertoires, which are the closest that we have to, to manuals. Um, and they have a more wider audience than the astrology manual will have. So they're concerned on certain things um, so people don't confuse um, things that are deducted and, and extrapolated by, by natural uh, order from things that are destined, predestined to be like yes. this. So, so yes. that's their main concern, that the language doesn't uh, induce uh, an erroneous perception of what yeah, astrology and astrological influence can, can mean. But the, it's not, I wouldn't say, it doesn't prohibit the entire book. It just say, well, this part... Mm -hmm. Be careful with the way you be say Be careful, it. yeah. Be careful but, with this reading. This part contains a lot of things. This part must be corrected in future editions. It tests stuff like that. So mild. it's not, yeah, mild, uh, not, not a very strong. Yeah. What we have here in Portugal, specifically in Portugal, is that at a certain point we got uh, our king died. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he disappeared in Morocco. And so king all Sebastian. the uh, King Sebastian. And he was young and uh, silly and disappeared, had no children. So um, there was no one. There was a very old cardinal, but well, uh, no, no, not working. His uncle. And, uh, and then the king, the king of Spain, who was his cousin, was legally the, the, the king of Portugal. Yes. So what we had here during this 80-year period was the kind of astrology that is very messianic. They would, every sign in heaven, they would say, oh, King Sebastian will return. Mm -hmm. This is also very messianic and has some kind of Jewish messianism into yep. it. Yep. And, no, uh, this is very syncretistic. It brings together different traditions. So that they would they would interpret everything astrological into the the signs of uh, King Sebastian returning. So it's not really technical. This yeah. this is more like yeah, an yeah. ideological problem. Yeah, this is particularly uh, visible. Uh, well, near near the Restoration, really in 1640, you see a lot of these texts because they have to to do the legitimization of the new uh, king, yeah. the new Portuguese ruler. So you see this popping up as well in astrological discourse a lot. And from there on, they're still waiting for Sebast King Sebastian to return and to assume... The, the Anytime now! Right. Anytime, <laughs> Anytime now! <laughs> uh, but uh, you do have this, and this, as Elena was saying, clouds a little bit of what you'd see of that straightforward... Technical. Technical, yes. astrological uh, expression. You still have some, uh, to some extent, but because there is not much publication uh, of astrology in Portugal, uh, whatever exists is in written form. It's manuscripts and still to be to be properly studied uh, in future research projects. Well, this re this reminds me of I'm, I'm changing the subject slightly of, of if I can if I can uh, shill a book. Uh, I just learned yesterday that a, a book has just appeared, uh, a handbook. It's called Prognostication in the Medieval World. So this is going to be earlier than the centuries you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But de Greuter in Berlin has published this book. Uh, it's, it's edited by, by three German scholars. And it has no. over, over 800 pages of, of short articles on all kinds of prognostication. So that will One be, I'm sure. One of them is mine. One of them is oh, mine. Are you in the book? Okay. <laughs> a short, very, short, a very short article. Because this was being finished when I was having my postdoc in, um, in uh, Erlangen. Germany. Very good. Yes. So Erlangen is where they're doing a big project. Very, very good book. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen the book yet? I have seen parts of it, not yet the book. It's <laughs> okay. kind of a big book. Well, they're advertising. Well, it costs over, over 300 euros, so I'm not sure I will buy it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it looks like it will be a wonderful uh, sort of one book that's going to bring together a lot of material for some of these broad questions. Uh, that will be very useful for me because my knowledge is pretty specialized on the mathematics of it, and I need to I need to know more about other things. And, and books like this are very helpful. Yes, yes yeah, they are very yeah. good. And I think this would be the first. And there is supposed to be another one. I think I think they were thinking of another second. I know the one of the editors is Matthias Heiduk, the yes. Michael Lachner, and uh, I, 
I don't remember. Klaus, Klaus Herbers. Klaus Herbers, that we also we also yes, he's, interviewed he's, Professor Herbers. Oh, there you are. Okay. Very nice, <laughs> very nice person. And the, yes, they, they are doing this because they study, they compare Western and Eastern. Yes. So it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's good. Well, they, they, had a, they had a summer school uh, there. Uh, it's been three or four years ago where they bring students in for a week and, and then various you know, scholars give lectures and things. And I, I participated in that uh, maybe it's 2018 or 2017. It's, it's, it's a wonderful project that they have. And, and this nice mix of people doing prognostication in, in, in many, many different ways, many different technologies of prognostication, many different cultural traditions. Uh, it's, it's a very nice comparative project. Yes, yeah. I enjoyed very much being there. And it was a pity I had to return early because of the uh, COVID uh, crisis. Oh, no. But I, I, I remained uh, in contact and working with them online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they, are, they have a wonderful group there, really. Very good. <laughs> Perhaps we should uh, close our, our conversation for now. I think we, we have been <laughs> very good. Quite very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it, and I've, I've learned some important things. So this is <laughs> this is good. You've helped me with my quest for understanding latitude and astrology. <laughs> yes, well, and we'll be attentive to that. And I, I'm supposed to write an article with the, all the examples. So there will be an article about this, and uh, we'll be we'll be t taking att paying attention to this and also to the calendars, to the, the yes, written calendars. I'll, I'll take a look, and I don't I don't. I don't know any examples. Perhaps later on that might exist, but I don't think so. When think do they appear? 16th century? The Shrive calendar, they start in the 1530s. 15. Yeah. Oh, very early, yes. Yeah, well, I think we don't have any. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're all printed. This was not a manuscript genre. This is a, this is a genre that I think emerged in print. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll be attentive yeah. to that. Yeah. Well, thank you very thank much you very for much. accepting. Very good. Well, good luck with your podcast series. It's very interesting. So, Thank you very much. Thank you.